Chapter 9 Starry Eyes Hyatt! Up! I had fallen on the cobblestone street, trying to avoid trampling two tiny children. Their mother glared at me, scooped them up, and ran with the panicked crowd. The rolling thunder of German bombers drowned out the screams of foreign tongues everywhere. I was paralyzed. Chunks of debris and human flesh fell all around me. Get your ass up and fall in line! An unfamiliar form stood in shadow in the doorway, bellowing at the top of his lungs over the jarring alarm. I bolted upright, soaked in sweat. I tried to focus my eyes on the clock, but was jerked out of bed by my collar. I was placed in a single-file line, and I moved toward the emergency exit with Frankenstein-like grace. Through my narcotic fog came the incessant barks of directions, apparently from someone who had just learned the phrase, orderly fashion. They wanted no talking. They wanted no horseplay. They wanted us in an orderly fashion to remain calm. I was so calm, I could barely move. The counselor stuck his clipboard in the small of my back and nudged me along. To no one in particular, I tried to ask, What's happening here? I heard my voice gurgle through phlegm. What's happening? Fire alarm outside, grumbled a voice behind me, in what must have been coincidence. I stood there with my chin on my chest, my eyes closed, and a string of drool from my bottom lip to my hospital gown, until I received a less than polite poke in the shoulder blade. I looked down at my feet. I raised my eyebrows as if to say, Well, what are you waiting for? My feet stared back at me with glassy eyes. They began to move, one step at a time, slowly, steadily, being careful not to falter lest I topple forward and reduce the entire line of my fellow patients to a pile of dominoes. Panic was not an issue with me. I could have been on fire myself. I wouldn't have lost what I considered a great deal of composure at the time. Each patient was being handed a yellow plastic poncho to protect us from the ever-present downpour. Gripes and outrage sounded off all around me. I was just happy to be able to remain vertical. Whether this was a drill or an actual life-and-death situation, my anesthetized shuffle was slowing the pace of our exodus. When I finally arrived at what appeared to be a lunch lady passing out the inclement weather gear, she looked me in the eyes and then pulled a penlight out of her breast pocket for closer inspection. Not a lunch lady, I guess. Oh, lordy, she said, crouching down to pick up the garment. Okay, honey, put your arms up in the air, she told me kindly, as if I was one of her grandchildren. As hard as I tried, I could only muster a sigh and a deadpan stare. She stuck the poncho under my arm and pushed me in the direction of the door. So much for kindly. Time, apparently, was of the essence. The alarm continued to blare as I carefully descended each level of the metal-graded stairway toward the paved ground below. Descended might be exaggerating. I actually stood there, tightly gripping the railing as every patient and most of the staff squeezed by me. I guess they were in a real hurry to line up on the predetermined painted line on the concrete below. 
Maybe to see the fire trucks and the emergency vehicles I could hear arriving at the front of the building. A handful of female patients were laughing at me through the chain-link fence that separated our recreation area from theirs. I wanted to cuss them out. But I knew any distraction from my footing would have me tumbling ass over face down the stairs. At first, I was incensed. That pack of cunts. Each and every one of them more repulsive than the next. I eyeballed them, one at a time, plotting my revenge. Ghetto trash cocksuckers. The offenders were three large black women in their late teens, early twenties, pointing and nudging each other. I could tell they had developed calluses over the years, thick shields of resentment that would deflect any vulgarities I might shout at them. Retaliation was useless. I suppose they needed to capitalize on any opportunity to mock one of the few people in the world worse off than them. At least they had each other. Standing next to them, wincing with every screech that came from their obnoxious gaggle, was a woman about my mother's age. My heart fell down the stairs in front of me. She was holding her notebook, her AA big book, and several pamphlets in her crossed arms under her poncho. It had never occurred to me or anyone else marching out of the place to save anything but our cigarettes. This is my last chance. Might as well have been written across her face in permanent marker. Next to her, a Latino pre-op was having its hair braided by a speed-freak thin train wreck. They didn't seem to care or notice the rain at all. It warmed my heart a little to think that the detox center was forward-thinking enough to put the tranny in with the female population. Unfortunately, experience then took a shit on my warm heart. They probably learned where to put the junkie tranny the hard way. Charlie! shouted Romeo from the line of yellow ponchos in front of me. Stop staring at the bitches! You're holding up the proceedings! I heard heavy steps bounding down the stairs behind me. Nurse Paul put his hands on my shoulder and helped me down the rest of the way. Try and keep it together, would you? He hissed in my ear. People are going to start asking questions. What the fuck did you give me? I managed to spit out. Thorazine, he said. It's not like we have a big selection. Try not to make a scene, for Christ's sakes. I was transfixed by the new faces. The chance to consume and digest some fresh bodies. My dormitory of crack-soaked miscreants had long since passed their expiration date. I drank these in, dissecting them all as fast as I could, all the way down the line, from the loud and boisterous, to the prideful and stupid, to the scared and frail, to the confused, beaten and thrown away, and then lastly, to a translucent, soaking wet Raggedy Ann doll of a girl I knew all too well. Holy shit. She had to have recognized me. I was unshaven and drugged beyond belief, but it was nothing she hadn't seen before. No wonder she hadn't answered the phone. Patient name, Carrie Noel Finch. Date, October 23, 1990. Age, 21. Address, 906 
East John Street, number 311, Seattle, Washington. Occupation, musician. Marital status, single. Ethnicity, white. Substance, more please. Recent level of use, too fucking much. Treatment history, I went to church once. Main motivating force at time of admit, I need help. You have to let me do it one day, she panted. A drop of sweat fell off the tip of her nose and landed on my chin. You have to promise me. Most of our arguments ended this way. Discussion would turn into debate, debate to dispute, and on through shouting, screaming, and combat until the end, here in bed, with her naked on top of me. It seemed like the most natural thing in the world. Another drop of sweat landed on my lips. Will you help me, Charlie? Someday? She whispered her face inches away from mine. It was useless to recite my list of reasons why this was absurd. When I told her she was smart and beautiful and talented, she only heard am static coming out of my mouth. When I told her she was just sick and there was help, therapy, people she could talk to, she just stared at the floor and shook her head. When I reminded her that she had a record to make and tour dates and people who depended on her, she just sighed. In preschool and kindergarten, she had been captain of the Kisser Girls, a group of girls who ran around chasing the boys, threatening to kiss them. Of course, they never did. That would be gross. But she was the ringleader. At age four, she had a revelation. She spontaneously entertained the clientele of a local pizza restaurant by can-can dancing on the stage where you could go watch the guys making the pizza. She'd run back to her table between songs, grab a bite of pizza and a sip of Coke, and race back to dance more when the music started again. There were ballet classes and violin lessons, at all of which she excelled. Mary had little lambs, turned into classical pieces and into first chairs. There were afternoons she locked herself in her room and practiced for hours and hours only taking the occasional break for Bewitched or I Dream of Jeannie. Soon came private tutors and symphony camp and recitals for the governor. Everyone loved the red-headed little pixie that played with the fire of a classically trained veteran. In extravagant hotel ballrooms, her father beamed with pride to see his blossoming teenage daughter in the fancy dresses he bought for her and her mother drank with gusto once she realized that for the first time all eyes were not on her. Carrie's pitch was perfect, and her unbridled enthusiasm obvious. But it was her aggressive stance, her feet a little farther apart than her teachers would have liked, and the way she attacked a piece of music that turned heads. She stood on her tiptoes as her bow carved the last perfect note out of the air. Then she exhaled, just before the room burst into applause. She smiled and curtsied. 
older gentlemen in black ties and their wives in ridiculously bejeweled dresses that hung on them like suits of armor, lined up to shower her with praise. Gangly young men with thick glasses stumbled over each other for an opportunity to talk with her. Photographers from the local paper took her by the arm and placed her between the commissioner of something or other and the chairman of some other thing for a quick shot for their entertainment sections. The best parts were the smile on her dad's face and the stolen sips of champagne when the adults weren't looking. Despite all this, despite all the attention, despite being the belle of the ball, if you got a glimpse of her between polite conversations, you would see a reticent, faraway look in her eyes and an insincere smile on her lips. None of it really registered. None of it mattered to her. You see, all she really ever wanted, since she was a little girl, was to die. Maybe it was because we could only be temporary that I could tell her things I never told anyone in my life. There would be no fairy tale ending to this story. She guaranteed me that. No wedding, no kids. No meandering through Sears, shopping for cookery. Those things were for other people. She was dreamy in so many ways, but the perfect dream for a guy who was rotting away with intimacy issues like me. She knew after orgasm I'd be rendered docile and agreeable to suggestion. I nodded my head like I had a dozen times before, but this time it wasn't good enough for her. She loved to hear the words. Say it, she ordered. I spoke slowly and deliberately. I promise I'll let you kill yourself someday, but not today. Not today, baby, she said, kissing me on the forehead. She rolled off me, reached for the nightstand, and lit a cigarette. If I don't know that I can do it someday, I'll just go fucking crazy, she said, taking a drag and handing the cigarette to me. I understand. I lied. No, you don't but it's sweet of you to try. She called it the distortion when the white noise crept up her spine and surrounded her skull, when her lips couldn't even crack a smile and her aching body lay paralyzed on the couch. No cycles of the moon, no harsh words from a stranger, no sequence of events would set it off. It just snuck up on her unannounced, always grabbed her by the back of her neck, whispered sinister words in her ear. It put a sharp object to her throat to show her that it meant business. Sometimes when it got bad, she would walk into our room with her arms extended, and I would pop a Rocky Erickson tape into the ghetto blaster, switch off the light, and hold her. She would bury her head in my chest and sob uncontrollably. We would sway slowly to the music. I call your name in the midnight But you don't hear me at all She would never let me see her cry, but my shirt would be soaked with tears. 
I felt dumb and helpless in its presence. If I told her that I loved her and everything would be all right, she'd simply reach up and put her hand over my mouth. I'd uselessly comb her matted hair with my fingers and hum along with the songs waiting for it to pass. Sometimes it took 10 minutes, sometimes an hour. From the bed, I could see the enormous Ziploc bag of pills I had been shaking at her as I screamed accusations only a half hour earlier. She had worked a dozen doctors for tranquilizers, sedatives, and antipsychotics, hoarding them for her someday. Contrary to my nature, I didn't see the mouth-watering potential of getting loaded, but instead saw only her cold, calculated passport out. I stared at the ceiling. She turned on her side and took the cigarette from my lips. Darling, if you knew what this was like, you'd want this for me. I couldn't argue with her anymore. But if it makes you feel any better, I don't feel like killing myself when your dick is inside me. I raised my arm to wave across the yard, but could only imagine to open and close my hand like a three-year-old. She just stood there, staring straight ahead. One of the attendants walked up to her and helped her put her hood up to keep the rain at bay. She must have seen me. <laughs> 